the words of Handel's piece are, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king, and all the people rejoiced and said, God save the king, long live the king. But, ladies and gentlemen, when we look to Talmudic tradition, we see strikingly that this was not the lesson that the rabbis learned at all. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 100, Handel with Care. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. One of the most famous musical pieces in the world is Zadok the Priest by Handel, an embodiment of the Baroque period, composed for the coronation of George II. I know that listeners of Bible 365 are fans of Baroque music, for, as the popular pun puts it, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. The biblical origins of this piece were derived, at least in part, by Handel himself. I quote from informative program notes that I read on the website baroque.org. Quote, The coronation of George II and Caroline on October 11, 1727, was a milestone in George Frederick Handel's career. In being selected to compose the music for a momentous historical event, the German musician had clearly been embraced by the English public. And considering the level of pomp and circumstance the occasion entailed, the invitation also validated Handel's ability to capture drama in music. As Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart said years later, Handel understands effect better than any of us. When he chooses, he strikes like a thunderbolt. While the honor bestowed upon him was boundless, precedent and convention governed coronations, and Handel's artistic freedom was limited. He was expected to provide nothing but large-scale anthems, chorus with full orchestra, for the occasion. Handel didn't acquiesce easily to this lack of control, according to contemporary historian Charles Burney. When the bishops brought him texts to use in the anthems, Handel mumbled, I have read my Bible very well and shall choose for myself, end quote. And so Handel chose words from the story of the anointing of Solomon, which begins the Book of Kings. Handel's Zadok the Priest tells us a great deal about the British approach to coronation and kingship, but the rabbis of the Talmud, to paraphrase Handel, also knew their Bible very well, and took from the beginning of the Book of Kings a very different lesson about the true meaning of royalty. Our next book in the Bible begins with the once mighty David devoid of his former strength. Now King David was old, advanced in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not become warm. With his life coming to a close, David has still not made official his choice of a successor. And the seeming next in line, Adoniah decides to stake his claim to the throne. Verse 5. Then Adoniah, the son of Chagit, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he set up chariots and horsemen for himself, and fifty men to run before him. And his father never grieved him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? And he was also a very good-looking man, and his mother bore him after Avshalom. David, in other words, has not acted, he has not criticized Adonia, but he has promised Bathsheba that Solomon will succeed him. But Solomon is very young, and thus the opening of kings asks all of us, what makes a king? And here a correcting note of clarification is in order. We have read of two sons of David, Amnon and Avshalom. Amnon was the eldest, but while Avshalom was seen as second in line to the throne, he was not actually the second son, but rather the third. The second son of the king was Chiliav, son of Avigail. But for some reason, this son is never in the running. The Talmud tells us that Chiliav died without sin. And what that may mean is that he lived a pure life, but also one utterly uninvolved with the rough and tumble nature of the political realm. The Torah desires righteousness, 
But at the same time, the king, to be successful, must be of the real world. So now, who ought David to choose? Adonia has certain features that some may identify with David. Vigor, forcefulness. Whereas Solomon at this point is essentially a child. Rabbinic tradition places his age at 12 years old. But that does not mean that Solomon lacks the essential features of leadership. Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein defines David's choice. Quote, The choice between the two alternatives involves selecting what is fundamental as opposed to incidental in the deceased legacy, that is to say, the moral and religious values that will be continued by the son, who is quiet and different in nature, as opposed to the activity and vigor that characterizes the other son. The decision is clearly made in favor of morality and holiness, and thus we learn that the successor to family tradition or political leadership need not adopt the same style of leadership as his predecessor, but he must follow in the footsteps of the previous leader's values. It is the new leader's right and obligation to lead in accordance with the inclination of his heart and the needs of his generation, while preserving those basic values, but he need not adhere precisely to his predecessor's policies. End quote. What this means is that David must choose between two concepts of kingship, one based on externalities and one on internal character. Adoniyahu is admired by many, but what is admired is superficial. Solomon is but a boy, but within is a true heir to David's vision, values, and worldview. Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet engineer a series of meetings with the king, and Solomon's mother pleads, verse 20, And thou, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are upon thee, that thou shouldst tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it shall come to pass when my lord the king shall sleep with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders. The king ultimately agrees. Verse 29, And the king swore and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swore to thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Indeed Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead. Even so will I certainly do this day. And Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and prostrated herself to the king and said, Let my lord King David live forever. May King David live forever. On the face of it, this exclamation by Bathsheba is odd. Having just expressed that the matter is urgent because David is at death's door, she now says that David will never die. But the point, of course, is that having chosen the successor to his dynasty, in emphasizing that it is not the external but the internal that truly counts, David has defined how monarchy itself will be seen in Israel, and now David's values will truly survive. In order to emphasize who the next king will be, David orders a public coronation. Verse 32, And King David said, Call me Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benayahu son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and cause Solomon my son to ride upon my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him their king over Israel, and blow the shofar and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, that he may come and sit upon my throne, for he shall be king in my stead, and I have appointed him to be ruler of Israel and over Judah. It is from this coronation planned by David that the British monarchy takes its most important coronation moment, the only one from the 1953 coronation of Elizabeth II that was not televised. The BBC reports in an article that, quote, the act of consecration is the most magical aspect of an English coronation, so extraordinary that history and the 1953 coronation committee decreed it must remain out of sight. In preparation, the queen was disrobed of her crimson cloak, her jewelry was removed, 
and the young Elizabeth was seated in King Edward's chair, an ancient and simple throne, clothed in a dress of purest white. It was a moment of high theater. A golden canopy held by four knights of the garter was suspended above and around the monarch, a grander version of the cloth cabinet a conjurer might wheel onto stage before making his glamorous assistant disappear. With the abbey almost silent, the Archbishop of Canterbury was handed the ampulla, a flask in the shape of an eagle wrought in solid gold. And the BBC article further adds, From the flask, the Archbishop poured some blessed oil of orange, roses, cinnamon, musk, and ambergris, and anointed the queen in the form of a cross, on the palms of her hand, on the breast, and on the crown of her head. As he did so, he whispered these words, Be thy head anointed with holy oil, as kings, priests, and prophets were anointed, and as Solomon was anointed king by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, so be you anointed, blessed, and consecrated queen over the peoples whom the Lord thy God hath given thee to rule and govern. End quote. This, then, is the lesson learned by the architects of the English coronation ceremony over the past thousand years because a reference to the anointing of Solomon has been made at English coronations since 957 CE. The assumption was that if David ordered a ceremony for Solomon his successor that was all about public anointing, then that means that every time a new sovereign ascends the throne and is coronated, one ought not only to anoint the new monarch, but also to explicitly connect the coronation taking place to the acclamation and anointing of Solomon in Jerusalem so many centuries ago. It is therefore no wonder that Handel chose in his own composition to commemorate and glorify that biblical moment of Solomon. The words of Handel's piece are, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king, and all the people rejoiced and said, God save the king, long live the king. But, ladies and gentlemen, when we look to Talmudic tradition, we see strikingly that this was not the lesson that the rabbis learned at all. In fact, the Talmud tells us that we should not learn from this story of David and Solomon, that one should publicly anoint every Jewish king. If a son succeeds his father as monarch, there is no anointing ceremony necessary. This public affair designed by David for Solomon, according to the rabbis, was due only to the fact that there was another claimant to the throne, and it was therefore necessary to clarify to Israel who the king was. The British crown constantly makes reference to the coronation ceremony of Solomon, whereas for the Talmud, the one thing we should not do is assume that we should always imitate the coronation ceremony of Solomon. But why should this be? What would be so wrong if Jews put on a show every time a Jewish king assumed the throne? The answer, I think, lies in the critical cautionary note in Deuteronomy that we have discussed about kings. That we must take care lest the king's heart grow arrogant above his brethren. The Torah does not want a monarchy defined first and foremost by the external, by glamour, by trappings. Jewish tradition about a king, in other words, rejects the perspective put forward, for at least a moment, by Shakespeare's Henry V. What have kings that privates have not to, save ceremony, save general ceremony? For Jewish tradition, it is not ceremony that defines the king. And as we ponder even the public coronation of Solomon, we can also find a fascinating equestrian contrast. Adoniah, as we saw, places before himself horses, chariots, to proclaim himself heir. Whereas Solomon is brought to his anointing on David's mule, the monarchs of the nations of the world have often been associated with horses. 
One can visit London's Royal Mews, see incredible carriages. Horse racing is the sport of kings. Pharaoh, as we know in the Bible, had his horses and chariots thrown into the sea. In contrast in describing Hebraic kings, the Bible in Deuteronomy warns, Lo yar susim, a king should not have too many horses. And we find that for biblical monarchs, the steed of choice is not the stately sus, Hebrew for horse, but rather the humble donkey or the mere mule. Saul becomes king while looking for his father's donkeys. The Messiah is described in the Bible as arriving on a donkey. Indeed, following the anointing of Solomon, we are told by the Bible that Adoniah, the other claimant to the throne, realizes that his ambitions are for naught when word reaches him that Solomon arrived at the anointing on David's mule. To us, it may seem so anticlimactic. That's your vehicle for your journey to such a splendid ceremony? A mule? But in a certain sense, the mule is itself an explanation for why David has chosen Solomon. Adoniah, son of the king, sought to act publicly royal with a host of horses, and David, the truly royal king, responds by sending his true heir on a single mule to be anointed. Yes, Solomon's anointing was a public ceremony, necessary in order to indicate who the true heir was, but this anointing was staged in order to indicate by its very accoutrement that it is not public ceremony that makes a king. The Talmud is telling us that because Solomon's anointing was only meant as a response to Adonia's seeking to take the throne, therefore actually the coronation of Solomon should not be a model that teaches us a great deal about the meaning of monarchy at least in terms of its public ceremony. What, for the Bible, was the most significant anointing in history? It was one that was remarkably without fanfare. There were only a couple of people there at the time. As we saw, the prophet Samuel had been sent to anoint a new king in Bethlehem. He sought someone tall with the makings of a mighty warrior, based on superficial features like build. God tells him not to focus merely on what meets the eye. Ha'adam yirela'inayim, God says, v'ashem yirela'levav. Man looks to what he sees, but God looks to the heart. True kingliness is in the heart, in the content of one's character. Indeed, the Jewish king is constantly reminded of this, that it is character that counts, not external glory. Reminded through the biblical law obligating the king to always carry a Torah with him and gain thereby the royal wisdom that matters most. It has been noted that today Handel Zedek the priest is famous, not really because people are fans of Baroque music, but because its tune was taken as inspiration for the anthem of the European Champions League, which, as far as I could discover, has something to do with soccer and nothing to do with the best sport, baseball. The composer of this anthem, a man by the name of Tony Britton, described his inspiration by saying, quote, It was very useful to have a reference. Handel's Zadok the priest is such an affirmation of power, success, grandeur. End quote. In the end, the Bible is about a covenantal people that have overcome all the grand and powerful empires arrayed against it because of their faith and their study of the Word of God. That is why we study Scripture. And that is why I am so grateful that you have stuck with me for 100 episodes of Biblical Israel's story. It is to you, my listeners, that I express my gratitude, and I look forward to 200 more episodes yet to come. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together next week. Signing off.